Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. So if you notice that when you start something new, something seems to always come along and sabotage it, like right at that moment. Like you're like, I'm going to start a new diet. And so you go, I'm going to eat right, whatever. And that is the morning somebody brings in Krispy Kremes to the office, right? That's why we shouldn't go to the office anymore. It's just not good there. Um, but like you, you've, you've experienced that, right? There's this sabotage moment. This thing comes up. You're like, I'm, tr- I'm really trying to be good. And then this thing comes along. It could, be, it could be a job. You take a job. You're job hunting. I take this job. You find the perfect thing. And then someone comes along and they're like, actually, we have this job. And you're like, why didn't you get me like two weeks ago? I was still looking. And now, you know, it, it, it feels like sabotage. You, you're dating someone. You may come in, oh, I'm going to date this person. And then someone else comes along and they're interested in you. And you're like, oh, why didn't I, you know, I should have waited or, or whatever. You know, it's like meeting the man of your dreams and then meeting his beautiful wife, right? Like, have you ever, isn't it, isn't it? It's slightly ironic, ironic, yeah, it is. So, um, but it seems like, you know, if you were like, um, you, you, you could say, oh, the universe is conspiring against me, that kind of thing. And I don't know that that's actually true, all right? I mean, it feels this way sometimes, just like you buy a new car and then you start seeing that car everywhere. It feels like, oh, I'm trying something new and now, um, now everything's conspiring against me. And I don't think the universe is conspiring against you in your diet plan or your new job or whatever. But I do think, I'm sorry, this is going to go dark very quick. I do think Satan is real. And I think he wants to destroy you. So it's not the universe, but there is an enemy and there is a desire to in some way bring you down. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit because I think there are things that are, are very common to us. It's not just, you know, food or relationships or whatever. But there are, there are um, some desires, some temptations, some things that come along that try to derail us. And it's not the universe. It really is uh, an attack from uh, Satan, the devil. Uh, and, and he uses some assassins to, to get us. I, I, so I want to talk about this. I called it today the three killers. I think there are these three. And they show up in Scripture. We have actually been um, reading through the book of 1 John, which is generally a book about love. That's why we, talk, we call this the summer of love. There's a lot of themes that John picks up. We talked about darkness and light a few weeks ago. Last week, we talked about the idea of love and what does love actually mean and how can we get concrete with it and what are we talking about when we say we love something or someone and, and how do we love well? How do we live that out? And, and John is now going to sort of pivot here and talk to us a little bit in 1 John chapter 2. He's going to talk to us a little bit uh, about once we, you know, we, we, we're setting out to love well, and then we're, he talks about our identity and, and some things that are going to be killers for us, some things that are going to derail us. So it starts with basically a poem in First John chapter 2, verse 12. He writes this, these poetic words. And when you're reading the Bible, you won't see it on the screen this way, but when you read the Bible, you can, you can tell the prose and then poetry sections. The poetry sections are always indented, and so they look like, you know, a song, song lyrics or something. That's what John is writing here. He's writing this something like a poem, starting in First John chapter 2, verse 12. Let me read it to you. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know 
him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right, it's this poem with these, like, couplets in it. This feels like grammar class or English classes. These couplets, and there's these three, um, three different groups he's writing to, and he writes to them two times each, and, and, and there's these phrases, I'm writing to you, this group, because this, of this thing. And so you see this pattern repeated uh, over and over in, in this little section. And there, it's interesting, there are three things he says he's writing to. He's, he'll say, little children, fathers, and young men, and then children, fathers, young men. And there's a lot of questions you, you would get as you're reading that, and, and as interpreters have tried to figure out what is he getting at here. Why little children, fathers, young men? So what, what about those particular ages or stages of life is he referring to? Um, another obvious question, why all men, right? Although he says young children, right, little children or children, that could be men or women, right, or boys or girls, I guess. Uh, it, so he, he says that, and, and why? And why, why is there only three of them? Why aren't there other life stages mentioned here? Some people have suggested that it, what he's writing about is a, a ref, sort of referring to, in the Roman culture, there'd be like stages of maturity. And so this idea of like children to young men to fathers would be like the stages of maturity through life. You're, you're little, you're then this young man, and then you're a father. That's kind of signifying that you've this, this last stage of maturity. And so maybe it's, maybe it's referring to that. Um, maybe by saying um, the fact that he, he only references males, except we don't know what children means, but when he goes to fathers and young men, maybe that means he's talking to men specifically, or maybe it just means it's, it's sort of a, a general way of speaking, as if I were to say to this room right now, hey guys, and I don't mean guys, I don't mean men specifically, but I mean just sort of the whole room. Uh, maybe, maybe it means something like that. Any of that's kind of interesting, I suppose, and you could get into, but I think what's, what's better is to really look at what does he tell these people? So if you think of these people who are all recipients of his letter, and then by extension us who are reading it thousands of years later, what, what could we get from this? Like, what's the point? Okay, um, he says, and if you think, look at the things he says, he says, your sins are forgiven. Um, you've known God from, from the beginning. You've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. Um, he basically says, you are a people who have their sins forgiven. They know the Father. They've overcome the evil one. They have the word of God abiding in you. You know him who is from the beginning, Christ, and you're strong. That's, that's who you are. That, that, you, that, that is all. All of that is identity language. Um, it's, it's saying this is who you are. It's, not, it's nothing about what you do. It's entirely about who, who you are. You've probably heard of um, like um, daily affirmations. Anybody like have things that you try to repeat to yourself every day? Anybody have like a, no, we don't daily. There's so many of them out there, guys. Just Google it and pick one. I don't know. You could, you know, there's like the classic like, um, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me. You know, you could like say that in the mirror, right, every morning. But if, I mean, everybody from like Brene Brown to the Dalai Lama have like some sort of daily affirmation of, of a thing you could say to yourself every day to remind you to, you know, go get it today and, and be who you want to be and, and that kind of stuff. And, and I think um, there's some value to that. I'm not, I'm not against, against that. I think there's something powerful about speaking up and saying something 
that you want to be true or, or speaking it um, and, and helping it to become true, sort of living into what you speak. But I think there's levels there. Like I think if you just say a daily affirmation that you make up about yourself, um, it's okay. I mean, you could get up in front of your mirror and be like, I'm a tiger, and then you go out there and try to be a tiger or whatever. I guess there's some value in that. But I think it's more powerful when others have spoken over you. You are this. Now, that can go very badly. Maybe your parents said something great to you, and you've always, I'm, I'm, I'm this because my mom always said I was. Or maybe they said something not great, and that's something you repeat in your head maybe a little too often is, man, I'm so much like this. That, you know, that can be very powerful because others spoke it over you. And I think what John is giving us is, in a sense, an affirmation, not spoken by ourselves about ourselves, not spoken by our parents by, about ourselves. Yeah, it's from John, a leader in the church, but he's giving the words of God to the people. And so the affirmation, this is God speaking this over. This is God, the creator of the universe, saying, this is who you are. And if you repeated that every day, said, no, I, I am someone who is forgiven. I am someone who knows God. There's a lot of power to this. He says you are strong. He says you are forgiven. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus today in this room, and I know that's not all of you, but if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been baptized into him, you've given your life to him, what John says here to these three groups, he's talking about you. The things that are true of them are true of you. You are forgiven. All the ways you've blown it, the things you've messed up, the sins you've committed in your life, you have been forgiven. That's powerful. You are, uh, you, you know him who's from the beginning, it says. You, you know God. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Like in a world right now, in our culture, where people are angsty, depressed, anxious, nervous, we don't know what we're doing, we don't know why we're doing it, there aren't clear rails for life anymore of like, this is what I'm supposed to do and this is why. In a world that's so um, shifting sands, it sort of feels like you're, you're, you're on jello, you know, like we don't really know where we're standing here. In a world that is like that, this comes along and says, no, you know who's from the beginning. You, you actually know the creator of the universe. You are dialed in there. You get it in a way that maybe other people don't because they're grasping at straws. And, and John's like, no, you, you know the creator. You know him who's from the beginning. That's, that's huge. Um, we don't, I, I would argue we don't have to have all the anxiety about who we are because we know who we are and we know who God made us to be. And we can stand here and say, look, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect, but I am forgiven by God. He has promised me that. And that's powerful. It also says, he also tells us we've overcome the evil one. That's part of our identity. There is, there is a war that Satan is trying to destroy us, and we are overcomers. That is part of our identity. That is just who we are. You are an overcomer, not because you're awesome, not because you said it to yourself in a mirror, but because Jesus has done it for you. He has overcome uh, Satan on your behalf, and he works in you so that you can overcome also. All those identity pieces... You're forgiven, you're an overcomer, you're strong, all of those things. Um, the thing they all have in common is they're not things you do to achieve them. They're things you get from God. Your identity is received, not achieved. So none of us can stand here and go, I'm an overcomer because I'm just so awesome, or I'm so strong because that's just my family name and that's just who we are, we're strong. You can go, I have received this identity from God. He's awesome, he's strong, and I'm on his team, and I'm with him, and therefore, 
um, I, I can be strong and forgiven and, and know him and, and all of that. We receive that identity from him. And so we go, man, I don't need to pray and sing and give and serve and all that. I don't need to do those things to achieve something, to achieve this identity so I can then be a good person. It's different. We go, no, I already have God's favor and love, and I've been given this identity. Now I just need to go live it out. And so we do those things. We pray and serve and sing and whatever. We do those things because of what God has done for us, not to earn something from him. So let me read on, because he he gives us this identity, and then he's going to give us basically a a, a warning um, right on the heels of that. Verse 15, do not love the world. Or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All right, we need to talk about that because um, John is going to say, do not love the world. And this gets a little complicated about what he means by the world. The world, in Greek, uh, the word cosmos, uh, it, it can mean a couple things. And it's, we have to be careful to get the right thing here. When, when the Bible says, when the New Testament says the world, it could be referring to um, the planet, the physical thing. So the world that we live in, it's, it's the trees and the mountains and the beaches and the, and the oceans, the universe, the stars, all that. That's the world that we're in, and that's a very physical thing. And so when he says don't love the world, he's not saying don't love that. Don't love a beach. Don't love a mountain. He's not saying that. Uh, the world can also mean um, the people of the world, right? The, the, the cultures, the people that are here, um, for God so loved the world, that is also from John, recorded that in his gospel in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. So John has Jesus saying, for God so loved the world, and then here in First John, years later, he's going, don't love the world. Okay, clearly those aren't the same thing that he's talking about. So world could be the physical thing, world can be the people. We can love the people. Or world can mean um, the, the systems that our culture creates, uh, the ways of being, the way we think, the, the systems that we make, the culture that we have built, which um, is not always great, honestly, right? So when he says, do not love the world, I think as followers of Jesus, we can love the planet we, because we're put in the Garden of Eden to care for the planet, to be stewards over the creation, to make something out of what God has given us. So we have this mandate from God, take care of this place and make something. It is okay to love the world in that sense. Otherwise, if we didn't love it, we would just trash it and not care for it. Secondly, it's okay to love the people of the world. I think that's acceptable. But this third piece, loving the cultures of the world, that, that meaning of world, um, that is normally what John is talking about in his gospel and in these letters when he says, don't love the world. He's talking about the systems. And those things could be things like consumerism or capitalism or nationalism or racism or all the structures that are created, things that people do. And he's saying, yeah, don't love that stuff. Don't, don't get so attached to those things and make those things kind of your, your ultimate thing. So he says, do not love the world. And then he's going to explain some of the things that are in the world as he's describing it. Verse 16 says this, for all that is in the world... Here it is. Here's all that's in the world, the way he's using that word. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, there's three things, three killers, right, that he describes here. Number one, 
the desires of the flesh, I'll just put them on the screen, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All right, I don't nerd out on Greek words a bunch. This is one where it's actually a little bit useful. If you look at what word is translated as desires from Greek into English to the English word desires, we think desires and desires for us, as we hear that word, it is neither positive nor negative, right? Because you could have desires that are not good for you. I desire all of the brownies, right? That's probably not good. You could have desires that are good for you. I need to eat lunch. Like, that's a good desire. That's a healthy thing, right? Um, So desires, as a word, doesn't sound in English positive or negative. But in Greek, it's epithumia, and and it means something more like over desires, as we would see it, like taking, the, taking a desire and taking them too far. That's what, he said, that's what he means when he says desires of the flesh. Flesh or body, we have these desires, and we can take them too far. We can over-desire. We can think about you having drives for things, but you can have an overdrive instead for that thing. Um, and, and that's really what he's talking about. Like uh, you can have desire and, and a drive to eat, and you can have an overdrive where you want to eat too much or you want to eat very bad things that are going to wreck your body over time, right? You can have a desire for sex and want to experience that and procreate and, and, and experience the, the pleasure and the bonding of all of that, but it can be an overdrive where it becomes an obsession for you and it's like something you're seeking in all, all ways at all times. It's, it's, not, it's not just a desire, it's like an over-desire and overdrive. You can have a desire for um, leisure, and rest, but you can have an overdrive of that where you just constantly are craving um, downtime, rest, leisure, and it can get very purposeless and, and lazy. Let me just break those down even a little more for you. Um, just take food and drink, for example, as a desire. Um, it's only in the last couple of years that we have been able to say, oh, there's such a thing as eating disorders. Like, for almost all of human history, we weren't thinking in terms of eating disorders. We were thinking in terms of, are we going to have enough food to be alive? And now that that problem has mostly been solved for a large chunk of the world, we have run into other situations where we're not just desiring food because we need it to live. We are desiring because it's just extra awesome and we want to, like, go to another level for it, where we have entire television channels to devoted to food, right? We have moved from desire to over-desire, or like an overdrive around food. Now, I like food too. Like, I, I like creativity with it. I think God gave us spices and all the different kinds of things to eat and that we would be creative with it. I think that's, that's great. Um, but sometimes when I watch like Top Chef, I'm like, I think we've gone too far with food, you know? Like, you took snails and beets and whipped cream and you made it this thing and I just don't know and you put a tiny little piece of it on a big plate, and I, I'm like, are, are we done here? Have we peaked in, because if I had that, I would then also go out and get a burger, because that's not enough food. Um, but something's going on there where we almost have gone too far, right? And we, we, we worship the food. Uh, we plan our lives around the food. You know, it's, it's become a thing. It's not just a drive but it's an overdrive. Uh, same thing with, with drinks, right? Like, um, particularly alcohol. I mean, I don't think you need explanation on that, right? Alcoholism. Uh, people, uh, when, when we get into this situation, we drink too much, right? Um, and it's, it's everywhere in culture. And, and if you travel in some cultures where they don't emphasize it as much, you notice how much we emphasize it here. Like, we've got this whole industry now built around 
beer, which, I mean, there's always been like beer, but then there's like beer and bingo, beer and shuffleboard, beer and like basically pick something and add beer to it and it's a business idea. Like, it's weird. Like, what are we doing? Beer and shuffleboard? Someone was like, we need to do shuffleboard and beer. Uh, beer and, I don't know, crochet, beer and parcheesi. Like, what, when does it stop adding beer to everything? And, and, and you know, when, when, we, when we do that and we see that, I sit there and go, I don't know, maybe we have a problem. I think we have a problem. Maybe we should talk about this. Like, the first step might to be to admit it. Hey, notice, we're adding beer to everything. Maybe this is a thing for us. Maybe it's not just a drive. Maybe we've moved into a place of overdrive on that, an over-desire. Sex drive, uh, a, a normal thing, something we have, a desire to connect. And honestly, it, we don't always think of it this way, but it's a desire to procreate, to make children, to make more. Um, and, and that is a, a good thing and is a healthy thing. In, in fact, the Christian understanding of sex says that our sex drive is not just for pleasure or connection or intimacy in a marriage, which it is that, but it's also got this procreation thing of God says be fruitful and multiply. And also, uh, it's this idea that this points us to something greater, that that intimacy points us to the future, to heaven, to an intimacy that we will one day have with God, that we will have this closeness. And in, in a sense, that sex is a signpost that says there's something greater that you're, that you're yearning for and longing for, and, and this points you uh, to that. And so sex is supposed to be meaningful. It's designed to bond two people together um, in marriage. And this is why the church has always taught that this is the way sex is supposed to be between married people. Um, and it is this completely vulnerable thing where you, you give of yourself in a, in a totally naked and, and vulnerable way to this person that you're in a, this committed marriage relationship with. It, it's meant to be that. And it's not meant to be thrown around. So the drive for that is good, but when it becomes an overdrive, um, it's a problem. It, become, it becomes a killer. It, it is treated cheaply, and we, we, we find a culture that is encouraging us to just throw our bodies around. And, and this is partly what John's getting at when he says desires of the flesh, the overdrive of the flesh. This is what's going on. And, you know, a lot of us will just be like, well, ah, Chris, lighten up. That's just the way it is. And it's like, yeah, that's just the way it is in America in 2023. But it's not even, that's not even the way it is in every country in the world. They don't handle this the same way that we do. And historically, and even in our country, we've not always handled it this way. So there's something going on that we've taken a good thing, sex, drive, and we've made it an overdrive. Last one real quick, rest and, rest and leisure. Uh, sociologists have pointed out that we are more addicted to leisure and, and like taking time away and taking time off. We're more addicted to that than ever before. And I, I've wondered what's going on there. I think it has to do with work. I think it has to do with um, a lack of satisfaction from work. Like work was given to us by God. So when people were like, man, I wish I just didn't have to work. I'd be like, I don't, I don't know, because I think, I think we're supposed to do that. And I think if you are working in such a way that you are doing, you feel like I'm doing something I'm good at, that God wired me up for, and I'm doing good in the world, I'm helping something move forward, I'm, I'm, I'm building something out, I'm growing something, I'm adding something of value to the world, um, that can be meaningful and satisfying. And if you are doing that, I don't think you'll need as much leisure 
time. But if you are doing work that is not meaningful and doesn't add anything to the world and isn't a good fit for you, but you took it because it pays well, I think you're going to pursue leisure like we're seeing in our culture like no other. Your, your drive for that will become an overdrive because you're like, work sucks. I just can't wait to not do that, and I need to structure all my life towards sort of you know, living for the weekends and, and living to, to get away. Um, again, I, I'm a fan of rest. I think we need downtime. I'm a fan of Sabbath and unplugging from all work. I'm not saying work all the time. And I'm a fan of leisure and, and take a break and, you know, uh, go to the beach or whatever you, you want to do. I, I think that's fine. Um, but I think we need to notice when our leisure, our drives for that become an overdrive and we move into a place where we're maybe more lazy or just distracted or we're just drifting off the purpose of our lives. So that's uh, desires of the flesh. He also says um, desires or lust of the eyes um, and how the things that we see can be killers to us. The way, the way we look at things and, and how the things that we look at end up controlling us, uh, that can be a, a big killer and can sabotage our, our growth. Um, and I think we need, to, we, we need to notice that. I think we have a desire for beauty, which is good. I think it's... That's, that, that, that could be a normal thing, but there becomes an over-desire for beauty, right? We have a desire for money. You want to take care of things and take care of your family and all that. That's a good thing, but it can become an over-desire for money. Um, status, a, a, acquiring things. Again, some of that's okay, but it becomes an overdrive for those things, and, and that can be a problem. Um, I don't think it's a sin to care for your body. In fact, I think we should do it. Um, it's not a sin to go to the gym, I know some of you are probably hoping that I would say it is, and then you're like, sweet, (laughs) don't have to do that either. Uh, It's not a sin to go to the gym. It's not a sin to, um, you know, care for your body well. It's not a sin to want to look your best. These are not sinful things, Um, but there's an overdrive there, and we live in such a weird culture about it now. We live in a, you know, you can put this filter over your Instagram to make your face look perfect. Like, what is going on? on there, and what is that doing to, um, uh, to, to, to men and women grow, growing up in that? What is that doing to what we think about beauty is, what we think of ourselves, our identity? Um, we're seeing the, the anxiety that comes from that. We're seeing the depression in, in teenage girls because of like buttons on Instagram and things like that. Like, we're seeing um, what the overdrive looks like. Um, it's, it's okay that we, again, it's okay that we want nice things, but this stuff can be such a, a slippery slope. Um, the lust of the eye, it could be a, a financial thing. We, we want money to acquire these pretty shiny objects. And acquiring some things is okay, but it can go, it can definitely go overboard for us and can be a problem. So we have to keep things like money, we have to keep that stuff in perspective in light of eternity. I have been given this much money. God allowed me to have it. How can I use it for eternal purposes? What can I do with this so I'm not just spending it on me to get more and more stuff? I mean, a, a good test of is money controlling me um, is, like, do you give it away or not? Do you give, intentionally give money away? Um, because if you do, you're saying, I'm not going to eat everything on my plate. I'm going to share with others. And if you don't, you're saying, all of this is mine. And that's when it can get into this space of an overdrive, and it can control you. So, lust of the eyes, lust of the body, and then this last one, he says, is pride of life. Uh, He talks about pride of life being an issue. 
there's actually an order to it. Um, I think pride coming third, and this is the way uh, first century writers kind of did this thing, but like the third one is going to be the big one. So lust of, lust of the body, lust of the eye, or desires of the body, desires of the eyes, and then pride of life as like the real killer among the killers. And we typically don't think of pride that way. In fact, sometimes we use pride as a positive thing, like take pride in your work. And I get that. Um, but pride uh, could be, can be kind of the real killer behind all of, all of these other things. Um, it, it, it can be the most serious because when we get prideful, we're basically saying, I don't need God. I've got this. Nobody can tell me I'm good. And if someone confronts you about any other thing, hey, it seems like you're, you're being greedy here or you're lustful here or you're, you know, you're handling this relationship poorly. If we have a lot of pride, we just go, I don't need to listen to you. I don't need you. I'm good. I don't need to listen to God. I don't need to listen to you. Like pride is the thing that sort of short circuits our, our ability to deal with any of the other things. So it is a, it is a huge deal. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity. That is by pride. The, the devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you become chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting you up in the dictatorship of pride, just as he would be quite content to see your ingrown toenails cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. So of the killers... Pride, pride might be the biggest one of all because it, it, it sort of short-circuits the rest of them for us. It, it makes us think, I'm better and it doesn't matter and, you know, leave me alone and who are you to tell me and don't be so judgmental and all, all of that is pride talking. And so how do we deal with it? So if these are the killers, and I think we can all relate to them at some level, lust of the eyes, lust of the body, pride of life, um, how would we fight them off. And this is where I think the first part I read to you about fathers, young men, children um, is useful. I think first step, if you're going to defeat those killers, is you have to um, recognize your identity. You have to know who you are. So much of um, how we function as followers of Christ needs to flow out of our identity as followers of Christ. Like, I am this, therefore I do this. Not not, I'm going to go do this in hopes that I will become something, but I am something, and this is going to flow out of it. Um, I was trying to think of the perfect analogy. I don't think there is one, but, you know, when uh, you don't have to tell a basketball player how to shoot free throws because to be a basketball player means you learned how to shoot free throws. It's just part of and they, and And almost they don't have to think about it. It's not like real technical once they're in because they've just done it, and it's just part of who they are. It flows out of them. It's almost one of those things like, can I ask you how to shoot free throws? I don't need to. You just know what you're doing. It's already there. Like you, could, you probably couldn't even explain it. It's so natural to you. And I think there's a piece of that, that if we can work out of our identity, it helps us to fight against these killers, against these sins, against these temptations. Um, we need to remember who we are. 
And that's hard because we live in a culture that's yelling at us every day in social media and in other places to, that we are something else or to be something else or reminds us or challenges us to, to look a certain way or act a certain way or buy a certain product or pursue a certain career or make this kind of money or pursue these men or women or whatever. We are living in a culture that is living counter to this and is dangling the desires of the eyes and the desires of the body and the pride is dangling all that in front of us every day. And so we have to remember that we are not that, that we are something different. Our behavior can change. We can fight these kills, but it has to flow out of our identity in the same way that fruit will naturally grow on the tree, but it has to come from the roots in the trunk. We have to have that, that root system in place, and then the fruit will eventually come. This is actually why I stay connected to a church. I am connected to this church not be, just because I work here. Um, I have been connected to churches my entire adult life, but really going back to middle school for me. And I've been connected to churches and been in a church almost every Sunday or just a ton of Sundays over, you know, multiple decades. And I, I think at the end of the day I do that because um, I need to be reminded of my identity. And I need to remember who I am because I'm, I live in the world that you live in. I live in a world where everyone shouts at you that you're something else and that you're supposed to be something else, you're supposed to pursue something else, and that success looks like something else. And so I need to read the scripture and go, oh, John says I'm this. Oh, the other New Testament. I mean, every New Testament writer does this. Read the letters of Paul. We're doing a men's Bible study. Half of Paul's letters, for half of the letter, he's telling people who they are, and then the rest of the letter, he's telling them, now here's what you do because of who you are. And you've got to read that stuff and get into it and go, oh, this is who I am in this world. This is what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. I am not this other American thing. I am this first. Now what do I do? How should I live it out? But first, to remind ourselves, we read this and we get together with a community of people who remind us of who we are. That's the val- what's one of the biggest values of the church is the community. Not just to make friends. Yeah, that's good. But it's to have the kind of friends who will remind you of who you are in Christ. Not in a humanistic, like, uh, I want people around me who can, like, help me be all that I could be. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not part of the church so that people can, like, inspire me to greatness or, or bring the best out of me and so human potential I can become all, you know. I actually believe in some of that. I, I think there's more in us. And I think we have a ton of potential, and I think God has some big stuff in store for us, and we can all become something. But I need people around me who call that out and say, Chris, this isn't who God is calling you to be. God's got something else for you, and don't get distracted and don't take your eye off the ball. I need people around me like that, and I think you need that too. That is the value of the community. That's why I'm a part of a church. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's why I would say be here when we, when we gather and, and join the small groups and join the formation groups and be part of this thing um, so that you can remember what's true about your identity. So I think part of the way we, we fight these killers is to remember our identity and surround ourselves with people who are doing the same. But the second part is I think we need to remember our future, to think, to think ahead as well. Uh, the end of that section in 1 John, when he says, don't love the world, he says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Forever is a long time. And John is also looking to the future and saying, there's a hope for us. There's life after death. There's paradise. There's eternity with God. 
we're playing the long game here, and we need to remember those things, um, and we, li- we need to live in light of that eternity right now. Um, the, the, the way, um, and, and this is so true, the way, the way I make decisions about what to eat today is determined by what I want to be five or ten years from now. If we're doing it right, I'm like, like if, if we do this right, the way we think about now is about the future, is about where do I want to go, because I'm making choices today that affect that. The way I will spend money or save money, if I save money today, that affects my life 20 years from now, right? If I get in certain relationships today, that's going to affect what kind of relationships I have 20 years from now. Like, if we're doing it right, we're, we're connecting these things. We're connecting the moment to the future. And this is what John does. He goes, you're not just in the moment. When you, when you, when you get this right, when you're fighting off the killers or whatever, you're making an investment in your future and who God is shaping you to be and who you are becoming. So the question is, who am I, um, who am I identity, and how can I live today that, lives, that comes out of that identity, and how can I live thinking about and investing in my ultimate future. Let's pray. Lord, these killers, these um, things that Satan sends our way to derail us, they're very common. um, And um, they're difficult because we have drives and they can easily turn into overdrives and it's not easy to notice when that shift happens. God, help us to be aware and notice and see what's going on. Help us to do the hard work of looking into our own hearts, not into our neighbor's hearts or our friend's hearts or our spouse's hearts, but to look to our own hearts and notice our own stuff and go, God, show, show us where we need to grow. Show us where our desires have become over-desires. Show us where the drives are disordered and become overdrives. Um, show those things to us. And God, I thank you for John's reminder uh, of who we are, that we are forgiven, that we are strong, that we are overcomers. Um, God, I pray everyone in this room feels that and walks that out as an identity. Um, Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.